All right, well, good morning. Um, thank you for inviting me. My name is Larry Lubinsky. Um, let's open our time in a, in a word of prayer because we could always use more. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for you. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ, that through him alone we have forgiveness and eternal life. And Lord, we just pray your blessing over this time. Um, we just ask that you would work in and through all of us, that uh, what, what I have to say would be edifying to everyone, um, and that we would continue to grow and learn what your word says about you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A um, little bit uh, about me, if you don't know. I'm kind of like a friend-in-law. I married into the friendships um, that were developed up here, um, which is really great, and they've become my friends, so that's even better. Um, and uh, I was invited to come up here. I'm a, a deacon at my church down in Richmond. Um, it's Calvary Bible Chapel. And I do a lot of teaching there. I've done a number of studies. One of my recent ones um, we took, two and a half years and went through the life of the Messiah in a chronological perspective, which was really awesome. I love teaching that. That is like one of my favorite topics. Um, professionally, I'm a architect, engineer, particularly in computing in the cloud space. So you could say that most of my time, my head is in the clouds. I'm like, you know, out there. Um, but uh, that, that uh, architecture, engineering background has really, is it, changes how I look at scripture and how when I read a particular passage, I want to analyze it in a very specific way. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I have to do every so often is drive into the office. That's an hour drive for me. And so when I'm list, driving into the office, as I've aged, I've listening more and more to talk instead of music. You know, I don't really care to hear the music. I want to hear people talking and that kind of keeps me awake more. And, you know, my choices for talk radio are NPR, NPR, or NPR, which that just makes me argue with my radio. Never a good, good, good thing. So I, yeah. so I listen more and more to podcasts. And um, one podcast I listened to by a girl named Elisa Childers, and she, she went through creeds in the Bible, and, or, or creeds in, throughout Christianity, and she coined one, one passage um, in 1 Corinthians 15, as the first creed of Christianity. Um, I'm going to read it here, and I really agree with her. This is like the, the creed of classic Christianity. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. It reads, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, when Paul is talking about in, in accordance to the scriptures, he's not talking about what we consider the New Testament, right? Um, the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts would have been, maybe they were write, written at the time, maybe there was some early circulation, but they weren't considered scripture, right? What Paul considers scripture is the Old Testament books, right? Everything from Genesis to Malachi, right? That's what he is, he is talking about and what he's considering. And so when I approach a piece of scripture like this, um, especially with all the studies I've done about the life of Jesus Christ, I want to look at it and go, okay, what does he mean by according to the scriptures, right? If Paul is using this as a creed, as the core cornerstone of the Christianity, the Christian movement is that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is according to the scriptures, then we can go back into the scriptures, find it, and understand it. 
And uh, that's what I want to do today. Um, we're going to take a look at a not-so-known passage. Um, I have a number of studies built on this idea of according to the scriptures, and today we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 11. So open your Bibles to Zechariah 11. Um, it's kind of like the middle of the book of Zechariah, and I debated on doing a whole, you know, couple of sermons on the book of Zechariah in total, but as I spent more time in the book, I found I could actually summarize chapters 1 through 10 pretty quick. So we're going to do that here. So chapters 1 through 10, in short, Zechariah himself is a prophet at the same time as um, Haggai. So you have these two prophets together, same time, ministering to the same group of Israel. And both of these are speaking to the people that have returned from the Babylonian captivity. So King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, captured Israel, and pulled them over to Babylon. They spend 70 years under the Babylonian captivity until the Persian king Cyrus comes in and allows them, the Jews, to return to their nation and rebuild their temple. So now you have the Jews have returned to Judea, They've returned to Jerusalem, and they're looking at rebuilding the temple. And what happens is initially they're excited, they're enthusiastic, and that's what we get in the first part of the book of Zechariah. Um, but they get met with opposition. They get met with um, persecution, and then they get discouraged. And then that's where we see Zechariah um, 1 through 7, 1 through 8, actually, um, he's trying to encourage them and build up the people of Israel. No, you need to rebuild the temple. You are going to have a king that will be in the temple and you need to rebuild it. Um, and then we get into chapters 9 and 10 and he starts introducing this shepherd that's going to come in 9 and 10. A shepherd that's going to um, really lead the people of Israel. And so that's where we get into chapter 11. He's going to go through um, two different prophecies. And so the entirety of, of the book of Zechariah is kind of like a prof prophecy panorama. He goes from his day and age through to this shepherd that comes up until the messianic kingdom comes in and is ushered in, and now there's this thousand-year reign of a Messiah. And so Zechariah kind of paints this picture out of 14 chapters. It's very interesting to see him do that in his prophecies. Um, the Jews will use this, though. They take this book and other, other passages about the Messiah to come, and they build this idea of two Messiahs. Right? The Jewish mindset interprets Scripture differently, and they say, hey, there's going to be one Messiah that's going to come. He'll be rejected. He's going to die. That's Messiah, what they call Messiah, son of Abraham. He is a sacrifice. And then there's going to be another person that's going to step on the world stage, and he is going to be the king that will usher in our kingdom. And they call him the Messiah, son of David. So that's what the Jews think. There's two people that are coming. What they don't ever consider, though, is what if there's one Messiah, one person, but he comes twice, right? He comes once as a man to be that sacrifice, and he comes a second time as a king to reign and rule. And... Chapter 11 shows us that first coming of Messiah, when he ushers in, it shows us 
a little bit of a spoiler alert here. It shows us the first coming of the Messiah, what happens to Israel after they reject him, and then a false shepherd that's going to step onto the stage. So this chapter kind of reads like what I coined as a prophetic sandwich. You know, you think of a sandwich. Um, there's three prophecies in this chapter, um, a couple of poems in here as well. You have the first prophecy that gets laid in, and that'd be like your first layer of bread. Um, and that is what is fulfilled in the middle. So it's kind of like a weird order. You've got the first prophecy is fulfilled second. The second prophecy would be your meat. And the meat explains why the first prophecy will be fulfilled. And it explains the last one, the other piece of bread, the future prophecy to come, right? So you, it kind of makes sense. You got that middle meat that links the top bread and the bottom bread together, right? So it's kind of like a, I call it a prophetic sandwich. Um, because it's out of order, it's, it's just kind of um, a little wonky, a little hard to, to comprehend. But we'll step through it. Um, we're going to go verse by verse through the chapter and, and just kind of see this case build for the, the Messiah. Now, the other thing is the key image of this chapter. Um, the, the key imagery that God uses to work through Zechariah is the imagery of a shepherd. And there are three shepherds that are mentioned here, the wailing shepherd, the true shepherd, and the foolish shepherd. And so we're going to see these prophecies build and, and how we'll look at how they were fulfilled and how they will be fulfilled through these three shepherds. So we're going to start, um, let's get into it, Zechariah chapter 11. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 3, and this is where we get our first prophecy and the first shepherd. So it reads, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. Because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of Judah is in ruins. So this, these first three verses um, are poetry, right? We can see that a lot of Bibles would have them indented. If you've got a study of Bible, it's kind of indented denoting that this is poetry. And so because it's poetry, you kind of have to look at it with that mindset, with that view that, hey, I'm going to have to go to other places of Scripture to see what it actually means, what, what the underlying meanings are, right? And so we can see that throughout Old Testament um, Scriptures that Lebanon refers to the mountain regions of the Sea of Galilee. So you're talking about the upper part of Israel. The cedars are a common referral in poetry to the temple, right? So he's talking about the northern part of the kingdom. He's talking about the temple. Bashan is today has been renamed to what's known as the Golan Heights. So we're talking about a larger area of Israel. And then we get into the Jordan Valley and the pride of Jordan. This is describing Israel as a whole on a massive scale. So he goes from certain smaller areas, and he builds out and builds out. And he's showing, saying that, hey, we're going to start here. Something's going to happen in this smaller area. It's going to expand out to the temple. It's going to expand out to greater Israel and then the whole nation as a whole, right? So at a certain point in time, what these verses are describing is a destruction, right? 
Um, the doors, open your doors of Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars, right? Something bad is going to happen to the temple. Something is going to destroy it, right? Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, right? These ta- he's talking and describing a destruction of Judah, the temple, and Israel at large. And so going back to that beginning of the introduction of Zechariah, right? The first 10 chapters, if you will, um, he's, he, he's talking to a people that just experienced destruction, right? There is no temple, but he's referring to a temple that's going to be destroyed. So you have to ask, all right, is he talking about the past? Why would he be talking about the past? That doesn't make sense, right? So he's got to be looking towards the future, towards a time when Israel will have a temple and it will be destroyed. And when we look at history, Historically speaking, he's speaking of the time of the temple that was built by Rome, not built, but built with Rome's help, and that was destroyed in AD 70, right? It's, it's even down to the fact that it was destroyed by fire. That's how accurate this prophecy is, right? Verse 1, that fire may devour your cedars. When you look at the historical context, the history of the temple, the second temple, how it was destroyed, it was destroyed by fire. The Romans were told not to touch the temple, but someone went in with a torch, set it on fire, and it destroyed the temple, right? That is so cool. So we have this prophecy of the temple and its destruction, and it branches out into the greater part of Rome um, and is fulfilled, right? That that is prophecy and prophecy fulfilled. But you see in the middle here, it talks about the wailing shepherds. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, verse 3, for their glory is in ruins, right? Who are these wailing shepherds? Well, a shepherd... And in the East is typically refers to the leaders or the rulers of the land. Um, That's because the shepherds were the ones to lead, protect, and provide for the people like a shepherd would for the sheep. So with that in mind, the shepherds that he's talking about is the leaders of AD 70, first century Jerusalem, right? Now these leaders... Their glory, why is their glory in, ru- in ruins? We'll get into that in the, the next section, but essentially they've led their people astray, right? If you know what the Jews were teaching at the time, they were building what's called the oral laws, oral traditions. Um, the Mishnah is, is what it's called. The Mishnah and the Talmud is what they have today. They actually wrote it down finally. But in AD 70, they were focused, so focused on their oral traditions they're building of what, what I call fences around the law so that they wouldn't break the law, right? So they build these fences and they, they are leading the people astray. They're building rules and regulations that are having the people to follow their rules, follow their religion, and not what the Lord said. They would even go, to, go on to say that the oral laws are more important than the Mosaic laws. That's what they would teach. And that's why they are judged. Um, These leaders are also the ones who lead the people in rejecting the Messiah on a national basis, right? They are the ones that lead the charge to, to have the nation call out to have Jesus crucified. Now for their sins, their um, judgment is cast upon them. Jeremiah will show us a similar scene 
Um, if we want to turn there, Jeremiah 25, 34. Keep your finger in Zechariah. Um, and let's turn over to Jeremiah. There he is. Jeremiah 25:34 paints a similar picture of the shepherds, the leaders, wailing and crying because of their destruction. It reads, Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel. Right? Jeremiah even goes so far into saying that the shepherds are the leaders of the flock. Right, the leaders of the people of Israel. So those are our wailing shepherds. That's the first one we see. That's our, our first prophecy and how it was fulfilled. Now we're going to go into the next section. We're going to read verses 4 through 14, and that'll bring in or usher in this next shepherd, the true shepherd. So Zechariah 11, verses 4 through 14, which reads, Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who say to them, say, those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of the king, that they shall, they shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staves, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I, fled the fl and I fed the flock. I dismissed three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is, to die, let it, let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left each one, each other's. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff, beauty, and cut it into in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with the peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. If not, refrain. So they weighed out for me my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut, my, cut into my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So God starts off this section, it's a long section, sorry, but God starts it off by giving a commission to the prophet Zechariah. And that commission was he was to become the, the shepherd to the flock for slaughter. Now, whether Zechariah became a shepherd or not, we don't know. Um, it's probable because you have other prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. When the Lord tells them to do something, they actually go and do it. Um, so it's probable. He could have gone out and gotten a, sh a, a sh group of sheep and became a shepherd to them. Kind of think of it like an object lesson. You know, I do this all the time with my kids at Awana. I'll do an object lesson. I think the last one, um, we were talking about uh, the flame of God, how the in Exodus, when Moses was 
um, saw the burning bush, how it didn't consume the bush. I took a marshmallow and I set it on fire. I could see what happened. It was consumed. It turned to, to you know, ashes, right? It helped drive the point across. So that's kind of what could be happening here. He, Zechariah goes out, gets a flock of sheep, and now he's using that as an object lesson for the people. The flock here represents um, the, the house of Israel, right? We commonly see that throughout Scripture, how the, you have the leaders of Israel or the shepherds, the house of Israel being the flock. And as we go through this account, this flock that's destined for slaughter, we see how it's abandoned by both man and God, right? So the leaders um, saw something they could profit off of, and God saw something that was rejecting him and his word, and so he's like, I don't want anything to do with this. These people are now going to be cut off. Um, in this way, Zechariah's commission is a picture of the Messiah who is to come. He's showing us what the ministry of Jesus Christ is going to be like, right? When you look at the life of Jesus Christ, he goes to the poor of the flock, right? Consistently, Jesus is talking to the poor of the flock. He abstains from the leaders and he goes to them, right? That's who Zechariah talks to. Verse 7, particularly the poor of the flock. Verse 11, the poor of the flock watching him, watching um, the prophet, just like the poor of the flock would be watching the Messiah. This technically refers to the remnant of Israel, the people who would accept Jesus as the Messiah while he was on earth. And then we have the instruments of the shepherd. He carries two instruments with him, a staff or a crook called beauty. Um, this refers to favor and grace, right? This is showing that he's going to guide the sheep. He's going to lead them, right? We see that in the life of Jesus Christ. He leads and guides the people. And then the other one, a rod, which is used to ward off enemies, is called bonds or union or unity, right? It's denoting that he's going to not only guide them, but keep them together and protect them. The shepherd, right, is to feed the flock, guide them. He even dismisses the unfaithful shepherds. These are the shepherds that we saw in verse 3. Right? The fact that there's three of them causes a lot of people, a lot of commentators to argue back and forth. And after a lot of careful study and prayer, um, I've come to know these three shepherds that he wards off as to be the leaders of the time. Because the leaders of first century Jerusalem, you have the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Those are the three main leading groups in Israel. Those are the three who come together to reject Jesus as the Messiah, and to build a plan to kill him. And then at the end of this, you have the, um, the brokenness of the, that rod of union or bonds. Um, after Israel is judged in AD 70, after that destruction happens, there's a dispersion that happens, right? Israel and Judah are no longer in union under Rome. They are dispersed and they do not become a nation again until, what is it, one. 1947, right? That's pretty crazy. They are completely dispersed and no longer a nation. And we see all this in the prophecy of the shepherd, the true shepherd. Um, reading through this, there's an interesting part. Um, verses 12 through 13. I want to read those again. It says, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. 
if not refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. So something happens to cause the shepherd, the true shepherd, to ask for his wages, right? He asks for his own dismissal. I'm done with these people, these flock of sheep. I want my wages. I want to be out. And what do they weigh out? They weigh out 30 pieces of silver. Now, when I, need, I asked myself when looking at this, all right, what is the significance of that? Turn over to Exodus 21. Exodus chapter 21, we're going to look at verse 32, because that gives us the context of what is the significance of 30 pieces of silver. Exodus, right? Yep, Exodus 21, verse 32. Which reads, If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So, what Exodus is telling us here in the law is that the 30 shekels of silver, 30 pieces of silver, is the price of a dead slave, right? That is the price to compensate a slave that has been accidentally killed. And so in Zechariah's time, and actually throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, that 30 shekels of silver becomes an insult, right? It's, it's the equivalent to going to a restaurant and leaving a $1 tip with your credit card, right? Because if you leave a $1 tip in cash, all right, the waitress can just pocket it and not say anything. But you leave a $1 tip with your credit card, now it shows up on her paycheck, and she has to pay taxes on that, right? You're paying 30% tax on a $1 tip. That is an insult and horrible, right? And so that's effectively what, what's being done here, right? They're insulting the shepherd. They're giving him 30 shekels of silver, and so this plays along into that narrative of who Jesus Christ is, right? We're going to see that here. Jesus, um, as Mark 7.24 tells us, came to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? He came to be the Messiah, the shepherd, the true shepherd to them. And when he sends his disciples out um, on their first preaching tour, he instructs them to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Right? That first part of Jesus' um, work, Jesus' uh, ministry, was to tell the people of Israel to repent, for their kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? That message right there. He's calling them to say, hey, if you accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah now, the messianic kingdom will be ushered in. Right? That's what he does. And he continues from the beginning of his, his ministry till about the midpoint of his ministry, instructing and feeding the flock. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that is the Messiah clearly teaching his interpretation of the, the Mosaic law. Right? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. When you read through that passage, that's Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, Jesus will consistently, you'll see consistently these words um, in you have heard that it was said, right? Every time that he says that, he's talking about the oral law, right? You have heard that it was said. So from the oral law, you have heard something. Now I'm going to correct it, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's instructing. He's refuting the oral law. 
And throughout that, right, that builds this contention between Jesus and the three shepherds, right? Because he is refuting. The three shepherds, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, are looking for a Messiah that's going to come and authenticate their oral laws, their oral tradition. He's looking for someone that's going to say, yes, you did what was right. That's not what Jesus did, does. That builds that animosity between them, right? That's what we see in Zechariah. My soul loathed them and their soul abhorred me, right? That animosity that's built. And that's because Jesus doesn't confirm their teachings. He rejects them. And then after Jesus is rejected, right, midway through his, his preaching um, of the kingdom of heaven, we see this in Matthew chapter 12, right? This, that's the, the point at which Jesus performs a miracle. He, he casts out a demon from a, a man that was mute, right? And when Jesus does this, the leaders say, he does this through Beelzebub, right? He does this through the power of the devil himself. And in that moment, Jesus now dismisses the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees for their charge, right? That reference to their dismissal in Zechariah, their dismissal in one month, I believe to be a, a reference as to how quick their destruction will come, right? They reject Jesus, and then 40 years later, they're destroyed, right? That's, when, that's how quick that prophecy was fulfilled. So after Jesus was formally rejected by the leaders, he no longer teaches clearly, right? You read through the life of Jesus up to the midpoint of Matthew chapter 12. He's speaking clearly. In Matthew chapter 12, even the, the disciples ask him, why are you talking in parables, right? Something changed that to get Jesus to talk in parables now. And then you see as he performs miracles, he no longer does them for the public at large, but he does them for those who profess faith, Right? The, the people that come up to me and say, Jesus, son of David, heal me, right? They make that profession of faith, and then he heals them. And then when we see Jesus weep over Jerusalem, he's weeping over that because he knows of the coming destruction. He knows that um, their time is running short. And that's making a reference to, right, verses 5 and 6 and 9 and Zechariah. Right, where everyone is given into the hand of their neighbor and to the king. Right, Before Rome destroys Israel in AD 70, there's a, a consistency in Jewish history of civil war, civil strife between the different factions of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. So they're not united. And then when Rome comes in, the king, to destroy them, it's very easy, very swift, very quick for them to do that um, because... They, they weren't united. And then we see, continuing through Zechariah, that ultimately Jesus was betrayed for what? 30 pieces of silver. Right? That's Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. Now, what's interesting about Matthew, though, is that he alludes to and he references Jeremiah. And when he does that, he's talking about Jeremiah chapter 19. But what Matthew does, and it's very interesting, um, the Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews. So he's going to say and do things that speak to a Jewish mindset. And so what Matthew does in chapter 27 is he mixes the two prophecies, Jeremiah and Zechariah, but he only references Jeremiah. Why does he do that? Do this? Because Zechariah is a major prophet, right? He's uh, uh, Jeremiah, right? He's the major prophet. He's the one who the Jews would 
would take greater authority from, right? Because Jeremiah is major. Zechariah is a minor prophet. He's not as well known to the people, so he doesn't want, he doesn't make reference to it. Regardless, though, of how you look at Matthew's uh, mention of Jeremiah, what's remarkable to see is that you see Jesus sold for 30 pieces of silver. That 30 pieces of silver is thrown into the temple and is used to buy a potter's field. All of this happened because the Jewish people rejected the Messiah, the true shepherd. Right? It's fascinating to see. We're getting there. Almost done with the chapter. Last bit. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. We're wrapping it up, this chapter, with the foolish shepherd. It reads, And the Lord said to me, Take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will rise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye, and his arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So Zechariah now is commanded to take on the role of a different shepherd, a foolish shepherd. Now, the word foolish in this um, passage doesn't refer to stupid. It's not like that he's a dumb shepherd, but that he's morally corrupt or deficient. Right? So this shepherd is corrupt because he does not receive the truth of God's word. He does not accept it. He does not believe it. And then a little later down, he's called a worthless shepherd. And that's because he does not care for the sheep. So now you have this morally corrupt, foolish shepherd who is also worthless and idle, not caring for the sheep, unlike the true shepherd, right? We see this. He calls out the worthless shepherd for that. He does not seek the lost. He does not care for the young or feed the flock. He does not heal the injured, but rather this foolish shepherd, this worthless shepherd, slaughters the flock for himself, for his own personal gain. Now, because there was a national rejection of Jesus Christ as the true shepherd of Israel, they would be judged, right? We saw that. That's the, the first half. And then further down into the future, that's where Zechariah is looking here. He's looking further into the future, and he's essentially telling them because there was this national rejection of the true shepherd, there will one day be a blind acceptance of a foolish shepherd, someone, some that we would call the Antichrist, right? The one who will come and lead them astray. Now, it's not that he's saying that all individuals will follow the Antichrist. There will be a great revival um, of the in, at the individual level of people coming to know Jesus Christ. But at a national level, the leaders will lead this charge in accepting this Antichrist, this foolish shepherd, and will lead the people under his wing. Jesus warns us of this in John chapter 5, verse 43. Let's turn to that one. That's a good one to turn to. John chapter 5, verse 43, which reads, Jesus is speaking here. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Right? Jesus Christ came in the name of the Father. He came 
proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to bring salvation to the Jews, but they rejected him. But another is going to come in his own name, in his own power, and that is the one whom they will receive. That is this foolish shepherd who is going to come and destroy them, essentially. Right? We read other passages like Daniel chapter 9 will tell us that this Antichrist will step onto the world stage, a world leader who will usher in a covenant with the Jews for seven years. And it's very likely that this covenant will provide, include things for protecting the Jews and for allowing them to build their third temple and restart the sacrifices, right? All the things that they are clamoring for. But after three and a half years, that false shepherd is going to break that covenant. And he's going to put his own image in the temple and force the people of this world to worship him. Right? This is God's chosen people that are going to follow the foolish shepherd. The people that have the oracles of the Lord that should know what, pro- they should be able to see a prophecy like this and see that that is coming, but yet they will not recognize it. God will ultimately judge the foolish shepherd and the Messiah will come and confine him for a thousand years in the lake of fire. Right? We see this revelation paints that picture clear and well. So, this is a really cool passage. I love it a lot. Um, I, was, I was reading this. Uh, my wife, Emily, she asked me this question. She's like, okay, Larry, so why is this important to, to kind of read and study? Um, and so gave it a thought, and a couple of things came up to mind. Well, first off, the Bible is filled. Two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy, both fulfilled and unfulfilled, right? In this passage in Zechariah, we have two prophecies that are fulfilled, and a third yet to be fulfilled. The fact that you have two prophecies that are fulfilled means that we can now trust the word of God and know that that third prophecy yet to be will come to pass, right? It's amazing to see that God gives us his word. We can know it and understand it. And then we can see, oh, wow, history says that those two things happened. That third must still come. Right? And then knowing prophecy can help us to prepare for what is to come. Right? Um, we become aware of the things around us, the, aware of what's happening in the world, and we see that. And, okay, now I see that, that the world's getting worse and worse. Maybe I need to go talk to my neighbor about God. Maybe I need to do this. Maybe I need to start stepping up and helping people. Right? We know and learn about the age to come, and it helps us prepare for it. Now, I'm a firm believer of a pre-tribulational rapture, and I believe that that is eminent, that meaning that there's nothing left on the prophetic timetable before Jesus comes to call us home. However, the day and the hour of that, that calling is unknown. So it's very well that the tribulation, uh, that persecution of man could fall upon us, and we might be led as sheep to the slaughter like Jesus on this earth. It's very possible. Um, but knowing this and other prophecies about that helps us to prepare for that time, right? That brings us to how can we apply this, right? It's important to know and study, but we also need to know how to apply it. Well, the first thing is we need to learn from the wailing shepherds. The wailing shepherds faced the judgment of Jesus Christ, the face the judgment of God, sorry, because they reject Jesus Christ. That's a picture of what can happen to us. If we reject the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection of him, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, then we will stand before a just and holy God on the day of judgment. 
And entering that day without that covering, without that forgiveness, means eternal separation, right? means that you will be charged guilty and cast away. The only way to avoid this is to avoid the pitfall of the wailing shepherds, right? Accept and believe. I love 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, reads like this. My little children, these things I write to you so that, um, so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now by this we know him if we keep his commandments. Right? We need to accept and believe, and then we have forgiveness. And we know that. We will not be judged um, for our sins. And then from the true shepherd, um, we learn from this account that the true she- we learn actually how not to respond, or how to respond to the true shepherd. Right? While Jesus was ministering on earth, the Jews hardened their hearts and rejected him. Right? John chapter 12, verse 37 says, But although he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe him. Right? Jesus did the signs. He did the miracles. He worked at their level, and they still rejected him. Um, and in doing so, that offer of the messianic kingdom was removed from that generation and ushered in that offer of forgiveness for the whole world, which is awesome. But if we continue to live with sin in our lives... Our hearts will be hardened, and the Lord will give us over into that sin. Romans chapter 1 paints that picture. Three times in Romans chapter 1, he says, God also gave them up, right? God gave them up to their uncleanliness, gave them up to their vile possessions, gave them up to um, their debased mind, right? When God is giving them up, he's saying, I've done everything I can. I've shown you all that I can show you, yet you've still rejected me. So now, even though it's opposite from my will for your life, I'm going to let you live your life in the way that you want. You can live in your sin um, and and just go on. I can't do anything else for you, right? Um, This is God's response to humanity's wicked ways. If we do not turn aside and turn to the Lord, he will give us up into that sin and just leave us be. And that's a horrible place to be in. This leads us, um, bring, turning our hearts continually back to the Lord, to living like, the God, like God is coming back soon, right? Revelation chapter 6, Jesus says six times, I am coming quickly, right? Know this, that he is coming quickly. And so as Paul admonishes us in Corinthians and Thessalonians, we need to stand fast, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord, right? We need to watch and be sober. These are the commands of what it means for us to live as if he is coming back quickly, and he is. And lastly, we learn from the foolish shepherd um, that we are to reject the Antichrist, right? The Antichrist is not going to step on the world stage until the church is removed, but the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. Um, the spirit of Antichrist, we see First John allude to this. Um, he says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Right? Every tongue that does not confess Jesus Christ. That is the spirit of Antichrist. That is what is alive and well. If you don't believe me, I, I encourage you, 
Go on your phone, pull up Twitter, spend two minutes, not even, 30 seconds on Twitter, and you will see the spirit of Antichrist in the world right there. It, you pull up the news even. Go to your TV, pull up the news. It's there. It's all over. We're warned about this a multitude of times. Um, and we even see this, I mean, just going back to this past week, when our country, our, our state even, voted to codify the murder of innocent children, right? That, that is the spirit of Antichrist. That is unloving, unholy, and a haughty way to be. And it's continually building and building and building. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy, um, he says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Right? That is the times that we are living in right there. We who desire to live for Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. That's a promise and a guarantee. We need to prepare and be ready for that, to stand strong in the Lord. I think of, of during the whole COVID outbreak, I felt it a little bit there that my place of employment wanted me to take the, the vaccine and I felt very strongly convicted against it. And what did they do? They asked me to write a letter why I was personally against it. So I spent three weeks researching everything and I came up with a five-page letter that I had to submit right? That's, that's what we have to do, right? We have to know what we believe and stand for it, stand strong in it, and the Lord will ultimately bless us for that. So um, let's uh, close in prayer and uh, thank the Lord for what he has given us. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for you. We thank you, Lord, for the prophecies that you have throughout your, your, your written word, that we can look at them, that we can see the fulfilled prophecies and the prophecies yet to come and know that they will be fulfilled. And we thank you, Lord, that you have warned us in advance that um, things will only get worse for those who desire to live for you. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that you'd strengthen and encourage our walk. Help us to love you and to serve you day by day and to continually abide in Christ Jesus our Lord. We just want to thank you and we praise you and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.